Are you ready to make a real difference in the world and especially to the people around you? Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where we celebrate the road less traveled in business, leadership, and life. We welcome you to another conversation that we believe will provide you with the insight and inspiration you need on your journey. Here's your host, Kevin Monroe. Hey, it's Kevin, and I want to welcome you to this episode, number 150 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm so grateful that you're joining me today, whether you're a regular or this is your very first time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Today, we're sitting down with Ala Hunkins for a conversation about leadership. And wow, what an interesting time it is to talk about leadership as all of us around the world seem to have a front row watching leaders rise and fall from around the world. Some leaders are demonstrating exemplary leadership and others, eh, not so much. I'd give them a failing grade. If you're anything like me, you're longing for leaders to step up and lead and see someone do something to exhibit love, compassion, kindness, empathy in their leadership. So Allah has just released a book, a new book, Cracking the Leadership Code. And I invited him to join us here today. And because of what's happening in our world, we had a different kind of conversation than we would have had otherwise. I've read his book. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. I recommend you read it as well. And I hope you hear something today that you both enjoy and encourage. And I want to invite you to stick around to the very end because I'm going to do something I've never done to close out a podcast. Hey, what a joy to welcome Alain Hunkins to the Higher Purpose Podcast. You've got a brand new book out, Cracking the Leadership Code. And I'm so excited to introduce you to our community of listeners and to have this conversation today. Kevin, I am so excited to be with you and have the conversation today. So that makes two of us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're going to have a deep, rich conversation in just a moment. But for you that listen regularly, you know, I always start at this one place. So, Allah, what is something you're grateful for in this moment that we're connecting now? I am grateful in this moment for the ability to pause and breathe. There's so much going on right now. And the having a practice that I can come back to, to settle and ground myself, if I could put a price tag on it, I don't think there are enough digits in the world for what I'd pay for the fact that I know how to remind myself how to reground because there's so much that can take me off the ground now. So that's what I'm grateful for. Man, what a beautiful thing. So how long has this been part of your daily practice or part of your life? Is this a long-term habit? Is it newer? It's interesting. It's a long-term habit that has changed in its outside look at different things in different ways at different points in my life. For my late 20s into my 30s, I had a serious, serious yoga practice when I was living in New York City. I was really involved with that. And there was a lot that that took care of a lot of stuff. Then in my 40s, I was in a whole CrossFit phase. <laughs> it was kind of a way, which was different. You know, it's just a different type of grounding through a lot of physical exertion. And now I'm in my early 50s 
the last couple of years really getting into a calm meditation practice actually mm-hmm. for me. And you know, I think that the key to all these things is find what works for you. And right now that's what's working for me. Well, it's working for you because you sure don't look 50. So keep it up. <laughs> well, the day we record, it is, I've started doing this lately. I've never timestamped podcast recordings, conversations in the past, but I've started because I want people to kind of understand the context, what's going on in the world around us. Today is day 83 of the global pandemic known as coronavirus, COVID-19. That's the day we record. The day we release this, it will be day 90 of that. So in business parlance, one quarter of the year has been in this very disruptive time. And then as you and I were talking, we're a week into a really unsettled time here in the United States of America. And although you don't currently live in the U.S., you're living in Netherlands. Is that correct? Yes. But you grew up in the U.S. and you're returning to the U.S. So as we think about this, and you wrote this book, Cracking the Leadership Code, I just want to start by what are you seeing in even the last week or the last 90 days this quarter? Where are you seeing leadership being done well? Let's start there. That's a great question. So for me, I am a big believer that what great leaders do, and now I come having worked in a business leadership background, but this would apply anywhere, is that so many of our leaders view people as human resources instead of human beings, right? Which comes back to the old industrial age mindset. And I think what leaders are doing well, for example, Jakinda Akern of the head of New Zealand, right? What she's doing in terms of not just being soft and compassionate, but very firm and hard and decisive about this is what we're doing around dealing with this pandemic. And I think such a great model in terms of what needs to happen for what we'll call future ready or 21st century leaders in that. Yes, we need to have what we'll call the archetypal feminine side, that nurturing, caring, compassionate, empathic part. And we need to have the archetypal masculine side, the clarity, the data-driven, the firm boundary. Now, when I'm saying masculine and feminine, I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about archetypal energies. And I think the leader of the future has to understand how to embrace all of those energies because all of us have all of that inside of us. So how can we learn to do that? And she is a great example of how she's been able to be very hard where she needs to be very hard and very soft where she needs to be very soft and everything in between. Absolutely. What a beautiful blend of the paradox of leadership that we're seeing there. Okay, so examples of less than exemplary. And we don't have to call names, but just what are some of the behaviors you've seen that make you, yeah, <laughs> what you just did. Uh, yeah, if, if my face could talk right now, yeah. I mean, I have to say for someone who studies leadership this last year, well, more than this year, but particularly over this crisis, there are so many amazingly horrible examples of what not to do. Yeah, you can write a book about five times the size of the book you've written about yeah. horrible leaders. It's not worth it, but... Yeah. So for one thing, particularly in crisis, 
one of the qualities that leaders need to have is calm. And there's so much that's being demonstrated that is not calm, that actually is meeting escalation with escalation, which any conflict resolution 101, don't throw gasoline on a fire. I mean, don't do it. It's just a really bad idea. The other thing is use data. Like you need good data to make good decisions, to get good results. When you throw out data and you rely on your own hunches, what does that mean? I mean, again, make my head spin with the kind of stuff that's going on. So it's just really, really tough to see. And that we want leaders who are going to bring out our better nature, you know, who help us to be better and be the calm in the storm and to be the connector and the uniter and the mourner in chief and be empathic. And so many of those symbols are gone. And in their absence, look at the chaos that's ensuing. I mean, today is June the 2nd and you're seeing it. You're seeing chaos in you know, 75 different cities in the United States right now. And my heart is breaking. And I will self-identify, you know, as a white man, I have the privilege of opting in and opting out of these battles that my brothers and sisters who are people of color don't get to opt in and out of every day. And we need to make some systemic changes in terms of how things are here. And can only, you know, the optimist in me hopes that this, you know, how much more of a wake-up call do we need? <laughs> We've got the health issues. We've got the economic issues. We've got the racial oppression. I mean, how many more wake-up calls do we need to wake up and do something? So that is my hope, is that all of us realize that certainly we can't wait for those people to do something because those people are not, and there is no they now. It is we. What a poignant backdrop for our conversation today. And to recognize, and that's why you listening, it's really important for me that we set this context because I believe even if we had spoken a week ago, our emotions would be different. Our feeling would be different. We would be having a little context for the conversation. So like you, I am a white man. And I had this conversation with a dear friend yesterday. I didn't grow up in what I thought was a privileged environment. We were a middle-class family, probably lower middle-class family. I didn't really know that at the time because we never lacked for love. But then I remember in grad school and getting introduced to privilege and understanding that privilege is not purely a, a matter of economics, that there's privilege that I have. While I looked at other people that had greater perks and privileges in life because of their socioeconomic background, just the very fact that I was born a white male, which I had no pick in that game, right? That's how I came out, white male. That in and of itself brought me privilege in America that I didn't even recognize as privilege for many years. So that's the context. We're talking about leadership. Your book came out when? March the 24th. <laughs> and so you spent some period of time studying, preparing, writing the book. I was interested in your book. You reference a study of 1,700 CEOs from 64 countries in 18 industries. And the question 
was asked, which are the most important leadership qualities to possess? What, what made that list? Ella? Yeah, well, the top ones that made the list are communicative, collaborative, flexible, and creative, which is interesting because what you don't see at the top of the list are things like data-driven. You don't see things like good with analysis, technology savvy. Now, those are further down the list, not saying that they're not important at all. But what we're seeing is that, and that list came from a group of global CEOs saying what they need in their leaders. The fact is, there's a really hard case for those soft skills because we live in this very complex, very digitized global world where the idea of the old industrial age hierarchical command and control style leadership just doesn't work. And unfortunately, too many people are still in our 21st century holding on to a 20th century leadership mindset. Yeah. So this is such a challenge. And so communication, collaboration, connection, flexibility, creativity, these are the meta skills of the future because ultimately leaders have to move away from command and control and move towards seeing themselves as facilitators of groups. And what they do on any particular day looks different depending on the needs of the group. But for them to be able to harness the talent, the information, the expertise from where it is and move it to where it needs to be so that whatever needs to get done can be done. Okay. The subtitle of your book is? The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And what are those three secrets? Oh, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. No, I'm joking, Kevin. No, the three secrets are really simple secrets. They are connection, communication, and collaboration. Okay, so most of those were on the list you just shared. Connection wasn't as such. Now, there were... No. When I read your book, and so you listening, you know, there's a twofold test for any author that I invite to discuss their book. Number one, that I've read their book. Number two, that I would suggest you read their book as well. And I have to tell you, Cracking the Leadership Code passed both tests. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yet I was intrigued, deeply intrigued, that it wasn't just that these were the three secrets that made your list, but was there something specific about the ordering of the secrets? Absolutely, there's something very specific. The model, and again, there are three simple, simple principles, but the model I use are concentric circles that with each one, they transcend and include the one before. And it starts with connection because you really can't get to good communication without connection. And then you really can't get to good collaboration without good communication and good connection. So for me, at its core, leadership is about connection. And the reason I say that, Kevin, is because it's not a job title. It's not a position. At its core, leadership is a relationship between a person who chooses to lead and a person who chooses to follow. And ultimately, the quality of that relationship is based on the quality of their connection, their communication, and their collaboration. But it starts with connection. And here's the thing that only about 23% of leaders seem to realize is that 
the person who has the final say of the quality isn't the leader. It's the person who chooses to follow. So the question for me as a leader isn't, do I think I'm a great connector, communicator, and collaborator? The real question is, do the people that I lead think so? Because in our 21st century world, we're not looking to lead through compliance because people can't do their best knowledge work in a compliance-based atmosphere. What we're looking for is commitment. And every single day, people loan us their talent. They loan us their energy. They loan us our engagement. So am I the type of leader that has created enough credibility, or as Stephen Covey would say, have I put enough deposits in the emotional bank account that people feel that I'm worth investing in by giving me their energy and their best effort? So that's why connection comes first, because at its core, leadership is a relationship. So I'm listening, I'm also processing, and I'm wondering if our parents, and more specifically, perhaps our fathers, because we were of generations that the fathers were more active in the workplace than my mom, at least my mom, that's the case. I'm not sure about you. Did they have that choice? Did I know they had that choice technically. Were they aware that following was a choice? Now, this has all shifted tremendously, Kevin. I mean, if we think about just how much society has changed in just the last 40 years, I mean, it make your head spin. You know, in my research, as I looked into this, you know, we look at, you know, why do so many leaders lead the way they do now? Well, a lot of it has to do with we copy the behavior of the previous generation and they copy their previous generation and so on and so forth. And again, where did this all start? This chain of behavior of leadership in organizations, it starts with Frederick Winslow Taylor, who's considered the father of the field of management, who by training was a mechanical engineer. So he saw the workplace as a mechanistic problem to be solved. This is where human beings became human resources. I mean, have you ever read about that term? I mean, it's such a mechanistic term that we're these interchangeable parts. In fact, in Taylor's 1911 book, Principles of Scientific Management, this is how he described his ideal worker. And I quote, because I couldn't make this up. He says, <laughs> the ideal worker should be so stupid that he should more resemble in his mental makeup the ox than any other type, end quote. Right. So this is the mindset. I mean, yeah, you read this stuff and it makes your jaw drop. I mean, we're not that far away from indentured servitude and slavery. I mean, Henry Ford was one of his big disciples. And Henry Ford said about his workers at the Ford Motor Company, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? I mean, again, 95% of the work was manual labor. And so that was the idea is that they didn't want you thinking for a living. Like that's their job. You just shut up and do what we tell you. And so there's been this transition through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and beyond where that's not the type of work that we do. And there's been some mega shifts in society. We have so many more choices than we ever had before. Again, your father, his father, didn't know about LinkedIn and Glassdoor, right? Didn't have that kind of technology and transparency. So those are the three trends, choice, transparency, and technology, whereas if you tell a worker today, shut up and comply, excuse me, I know where the grass is greener. I'll get a job down the street. I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has found the median tenure for workers age 25 is 2.8 years. I mean, job hopping is the new normal. And the number one reason people would leave a job 
is their inability to learn and grow. So we expect way more from work than to shut up and comply and just get a paycheck and be thankful for it. So basically, our expectation at the workplace in some ways is mirroring society in terms of what we expect of human rights. We want more out of everything, and the workplace is no exception. All beautiful. So connection. I love that you start with connection. And I'm just curious, what's different about connecting in times of crisis? And not just crisis, but now that so many people that used to have everybody in their office every day and they could connect, even the good connectors, I'm not talking about those that struggle to connect, but a lot of them rely on physical presence, seeing you face to face, walking through the building to make a connection. Well, even the great connectors are finding challenges connecting in a work at home virtual environment. Yeah, that's a huge issue. And the fact is, it's like all of the things that you did before that were important are still important, but they're more important because where you could rely in the face to face informality of the office, you now have to be extra intentional about how you go about doing anything and everything because connection at work can happen a little bit by accident. When we're working completely remotely from home, you have to create the intention and create the culture around what intention and what connection looks like. So, you know, in times like this, of this kind of crisis, I say that leaders, we need to be exceptionally human. So, The first thing is to recognize that all of us are going through a collective global trauma when it comes to coronavirus and different people respond to trauma in different ways. And I discovered this because I looked up the definition of trauma, which is defined in the dictionary as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. I think this qualifies, wouldn't you say? (laughs) I mean, so the fact is we all respond differently to trauma. And one of the most important things we can do as leaders is to help people feel that their own experience is normal. That no, Kevin, you're not going crazy. That if you don't feel okay, that's okay. And just by giving you the psychological air and the safety to go, I'm having a really hard time because, you know, I'm trying to do my job and I'm also got these two kids at home and having to homeschool them and I'm trying to be professional with clients. This is really stressful. And for me to go, Kevin, I hear you. This is really stressful. Like just to give you that space to know, yeah, this is not working from home. This is working at home in the middle of a global pandemic. Two very different things, right? So leaders need to understand what can we do to make people feel more connected, that we should be leaning into checking in more often, offering more support. Because when we come out the other side of this, there is not going to be a single person in the world who's going to think back and go, gosh, my leader cared about me too much over that coronavirus pandemic, right? The fact is, you know, the old quote from Maya Angelou, people won't remember what you said, they won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And the reason that is particularly important right now is in some ways, we are the CEO, we are the chief empathy officer, is that emotions are contagious. And when people are in crisis mode, their central nervous system is activated. And when you're activated and stressed like that, 
you literally can't do your best thinking, which means you cannot perform at your best, which means part of our job and why I think connection and empathy is so important as leaders is it's our job to calm other people's central nervous systems down so they can just go, okay, I'm okay. We're going to be okay. What's on my to-do list now? Now I can get to work because otherwise I get overwhelmed and I can't possibly get much done. So that's yeah. why connection is so There's so important. many thoughts stirring in my mind at this moment, Ala. Okay, I want to go back and unpack a couple of these and connect some dots of what I heard you say. You talked right. about that, and I agree with you, that truly the ultimate decision of a leader lies in the heart of those that choose to follow. And then we were talking about connection. And then I thought about a couple of the stories in your book that weren't necessarily about connection, but I'm going to connect these dots. That it's not whether or not you as a leader feel you made a little extra effort to connect, therefore you are connecting. Just as we said, who makes the ultimate decision whether or not you as a leader cared for me and you as a leader, I felt connected to you. Where does that decision lie? Lies in the person who chooses to follow. So as leaders, we are in the managing perceptions business. And that's why when we talk about emotional intelligence and talk about self-awareness, the first piece is knowing yourself. But the other big piece to awareness is getting awareness of how do other people see you. So the reason that in the studies, people feel very comfortable in an anonymous, confidential study giving the honest truth, which is why only 23% of leaders rank as effective. Because for most people, they would never tell that kind of truth to their leader because doing so would be a career limiting move. And most of us as leaders aren't that open and vulnerable and saying, no, Kevin, please, no, really, I want to know. And showing you and having demonstrated through my track record that, no, really, I want to know how I can serve you better because I want to be a better leader. Because when I can serve you better, I become better and you become better. But most of us don't go that far, which is why those conversations don't happen. And so many leaders end up playing this guessing game. You know, instead of guessing, wouldn't it make more sense to ask the people who are the judges of equality? So investing extra time in a virtual environment to connect and yes. to allow people to feel, not just to, hey, we had it on the agenda, two minutes of connection, but to actually go the distance to make sure people feel that connection. and feel yeah, completely. So empathy. I love the story that you shared, and I have thought about it a couple of times, your Trader Joe story of empathy. Let's unpack that a moment, if you will. Sure, yeah. So a number of years ago, my kids were probably about six and three. My son was in kindergarten. My daughter wasn't even in preschool. And I was taking them all around for a bunch of errands, and they were in the back of the minivan singing along. And we finally finished up our day, and we were in the parking lot of Trader Joe's supermarket, which from my house is a ways. It's about 40 minutes away. So we get out of the car, and as we get out of the car, I am checking my pockets, and I cannot find my wallet. It is missing, in action. Don't know what to do. 
So knowing me, I made play the day and I thought, no, I haven't bought anything. I probably just left my wallet at home. Quick call to my wife. Yes, I left my wallet at home. But the problem is we're in the Trader Joe's parking lot with a big shopping list and I'm not going to drive 40 minutes home and 40 minutes back. It's not going to happen. So I thought, well, maybe because I memorized my 16-digit credit card number, maybe they can call it in somehow. I thought it's worth a shot. So I go inside and I go to the manager's booth and I meet a woman there who's got the Trader Joe's Hawaiian shirt on and I explain the whole situation and I ask her, be okay if I can, can they call in my credit card because I don't want to have to go home? She said, sorry, sir, we can't do that. So I'm about to turn around with my tail between my legs thinking this was a really stupid move and this other guy behind her says, excuse me, and I turn back. His name's Peter. I see, I remember his name tag. He has big round glasses. And he said, you live over the river in Northampton, that right? I said, yeah. I said, I left my wallet. That's why I, I got to go home because I can't shop. He said, it's a long way away. Why don't you go ahead and shop? And when you're done, just call me over and I'll put it on my card. And then you can pay me back sometime. And at this point, I'm just completely floored. I'm thinking, wait, what? I said, I'm sorry do you have some kind of special company card for something like that? And he said, no, it's my personal credit card. I'll just put it on my credit card and then you can come back over. And when you're back in the store, you can pay me next time you're here. I said, you would do that? Yeah, sure. It happens more often than you think. Hmm. And I was just like gobsmacked. I just could not believe this. And he, I said, I'm leaving town tomorrow to go on a business trip. I can't be back here for over a week. He said, oh, really? It's no problem. It's fine. A week is fine. Nope. You know? So anyway, $73.66 later, I'm walking out of Trader Joe's and Peter swiped his credit card for me. And I got home. The first thing I told my wife is like, you've got to go back over there tomorrow. Here's a check. Here's a thank you card, please. And the amazing thing about it was, you know, he didn't just get me at the, you know, transactional level. He understood me. You know, and it's funny, I've told that story a number of times, and I'm not suggesting that you have to open up your checkbook or use your credit card, but the idea of really listening to somebody and looking for ways to help them with their issue is at the core of that story for me around Peter and Trader Joe's, because he completely went above and beyond anything I would have in my wildest dreams expected, right? He's realizing, oh, for him, he's like, it's not a big deal. And I just wonder for us, how often is there something that would not be a big deal for us to do that would be a big deal on the receiving end? And it's interesting because as we think about empathy, you know, you talked about it before, it's not something to check off on your to-do list. In fact, I think the biggest barrier we have to empathy is impatience because while digital life happens at the speed of light, human relationships take time. And showing empathy means showing patience. And going back to, if you want to check in and connect with people and you want to connect with empathy, here are three simple questions that you can ask. Number one, how are you feeling right now? And then shut up and listen, right? Just take some time, just let them talk. Number two, what's distracting you? What's on your mind? And just shut up and listen and let them talk. And then three, how can I support you? Right? Simple questions. But that framework, allows people to feel like you actually care to a level that makes the kind of empathic difference that leaders can make. Okay, I have to make a comment here. I love this. And I know the folks that normally listen to this, you're smart people, you get this. These aren't magic questions. Because the last line you said is so important. If these questions aren't connected to caring, don't ask the questions. 
because the fact that you don't care will come through and people will understand you're just operating off script. Yeah, this is the thing. This is why leading people is not a checkbox exercise. This isn't like, oh, I have to check in care. I have got five minutes for empathy here. How are you? How are you? How are you? I mean, look, we are so emotionally intuitive. We all smell it when it's BS. We know it. And so don't even start to go down that road because you sniff it out and you have lost all credibility. It's just, if you don't have time, let people know you don't have time. I'm sorry, I'm busy. Be transparent because people can read it. People can see it. Okay, the second C is communication. And I'm wondering, is there someone, because there is for me, is there someone who has demonstrated just superior crisis communication skills? in the last 90 days? Well, I think about over crisis communication. I mean, if you look at what Andrew Cuomo has done in New York State, I mean, just in terms of keeping people in real time, real informed. So one of the key things in a crisis is people abhor a vacuum, right? Nature abhors a vacuum and so do people. And so the idea is how do you update people on a regular basis? And the first question that people are always thinking is, what does this mean? What should I do? Am I going to be okay? So giving people data, even if you don't have the solutions, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. Because just educating people starts to calm their nervous system down, as we talked about before. So it's so important to keep people up to date and informed and to do it obviously with clarity is key. So not to overwhelm people with immense amounts of minutia that they can't follow. And at the same time, not being so big picture that people can't grasp onto what you're saying. So he's a really good example, I think, of ways to do that. Now, some people might quibble about how he's governed the state of New York before or since, but certainly that's some good examples of clarity of communication moving forward. And then I think of Arne Sorensen, CEO of Marriott. Yeah. That when that first video came out, that he addressed Marriott Global, I remember responding and saying, oh, my gosh, I just watched a five-minute masterclass in crisis communication. Yeah, yeah, I watched that as well. Yeah, because what Arnie Sorensen does is basically as connected as he can, saying, look, this is bad, and we're laying off whatever it was, 80% of the people, and this is everything I have never wanted in my life. And I think he comes to and goes into he shows tears in the video, the care and concern he has for the people. It's so clear that that's where he starts from. I felt yeah. it, right? Going back to my annual. Yeah, it's care how they feel. Exactly, exactly. Is there something else you want to say about communication before? I don't want to breeze over. Commu- well, I do. I don't want to breeze over it. Let me ask you something. <laughs> Transferring information or transforming information. What a beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote that. So here's the thing. You know, we live in this information age and the fact is we're all drowning in information. And while we're drowning in it, we're actually starved for insight. And so the role of the leader is to learn how to transform information into understanding. And why that is so critical is because understanding becomes the platform on which we 
take all future action. So if we stand on a solidly built platform of shared understanding, we can suddenly make great decisions because we have understanding. And when we make great decisions, we get great results. But if we're standing on a topsy-turvy, termite-infested platform that is filled with misunderstanding, we're going to make bad decisions and we're going to get bad results. And so leaders need to understand that the default setting of communication is that topsy-turvy termite-infested platform. That's the natural default setting and that we have to proactively ensure that we are clarifying, re-clarifying, confirming, reconfirming with people what is everyone walking away with. How many of us have had the experience of being in a meeting, meeting ends, and then we all go out and we have the meeting after the meeting. What did we all agree to? What is Kevin doing? What's Helena doing? What's happened? Because we don't take the time to confirm and clarify all those commitments in the meeting. And the cost of not doing so is massive. I'm not sure if I can get you to say that one line again about shared understanding as the platform. That's a beautiful line. Yeah, shared understanding is the platform. It's the foundation on which we take all future action. If the platform is stable, we make great decisions and we get great results. And if the platform is awkward, falling apart, we're going to make bad decisions and get bad results. That's the principle. The challenge is in living it every day. Yeah. So there takes a real level of self-awareness of a leader when they're not getting the result they thought they should be getting to step up and explore, might I have been a contributing factor? Might I not have created the shared understanding that was needed to produce the desired result? Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. I think about why this is so much of a passion of mine. So I mentioned, you know, my name is Alain. My mom is an immigrant. She came from Belgium. She's a French speaker. And growing up, I used to be dragged by her to the department stores. And I remember many, many a time, my mom has a pretty thick French accent. And of course, I understand her perfectly. But I remember seeing the look of the face of the person behind the counter who did not understand a word she was saying. So my role was to step in and become that translator, right? The interpreter. And so recognizing that part of our role as leaders is as people are sharing information around the room is, are we interpreting what, you know, is what Kevin's saying? What Alain is hearing? So I see that as such a critical part. And I guess for me, it was also such an uncomfortable role when I was a six-year-old kid. I did not want to do that. But I realized that was such an important step because otherwise they were not able to really see eye to eye or hear themselves. Okay, Ella, what does collaboration look like as a leadership skill? That one, oh. that one intrigues me because so many leaders at least the old view of leadership devalued collaboration. Because let me peel back and reveal my superhero S on my chest. I don't need to collaborate. I'm the big savior. Exactly, exactly. And so that superhero myth hopefully is going away along with Frederick Winslow Taylor's disciples. Yeah, so the fact is we live in this age of intense knowledge and as we said earlier the role of the leader is to facilitate the collaboration of all these great minds coming up with the best ideas so that we can solve problems pick out of all those ideas pick the problems that the best ideas to solve the problems and so for me as we look about what leaders can do the fact is leaders can't make people collaborate well 
right? So you can't directly do that because that would be like being a command and control. Okay, we're going to collaborate well. You can't do it. But what we can do as leaders is we can create the conditions or the environment in which people are most likely to collaborate as effectively as possible. And what I found in my research is that there are four fundamental needs that people need to be satisfied for them to collaborate at their best. And so the first one is we all have a need for safety. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously physical safety, which is why we're all working from home, but there's also psychological safety that people feel safe to speak up and ask questions or say, I don't know, or I need help. So we need safety. Second need is people have a need for energy. I mean, we've all been on those two and a half hour, three hour conference calls. You're thinking, oh my gosh, I should have scheduled the root canal today. This is just horrible, right? So we're just drained and we just can't contribute because the environment we're in is not energized. We also have a need for purpose that when something matters to us, we bring more of ourselves to it. So what do leaders do to make sure that we're not so stuck in the weeds, but we rise up and see the bigger picture meaning and purpose to why we do what we do? And then the fourth is around people have this need for ownership. They want to have some freedom and autonomy about how they go about getting their work done because that's where they unleash and unlock their creativity and more passion and energy. So safety, energy, purpose, and ownership. And what we can do as leaders, there are specific tools and techniques, and I go through a ton of these in the book. There are things that we can do to create these conditions where great collaboration is more likely to happen. Okay, since this is the Higher Purpose podcast, and you talked about purpose as one of those, I was really intrigued about that. And if you're a regular listener, you know that the topic of the last two conversations we featured here on the podcast were meaningful work. So what's the connection between purpose and meaningful work for you? And how does that allow someone to come alive in the workplace and want to collaborate with the leader? Great. Yeah. So if we think about purpose, that becomes our North Star. That's the destination. What's our why? That's what hopefully gets us up in the morning and gets us excited towards moving towards it. Now, where that connects to meaningful work is that it turns out, and this came from research done by Teresa Amabile at Harvard, and she's got a wonderful book called The Progress Principle. And she did this wonderful, huge research study, and it found the number one thing that motivates people is making regular progress towards a meaningful goal. So if you think about purpose being that North Star destination, and yet then progress being that's what fuels your engine because all those small wins get you excited because otherwise what you end up with is this learned helplessness. Like if we say, oh, we're going to do this wonderful, great thing, but we don't see how what we do day to day is actually starting to move the needle towards that, we're going to start to wane and give up energy. So as leaders, we want to be able to be big picture and strategic and also very tactical and helping people. And this is, again, the paradox of leadership is the ability to think at both that high level as well as that bird's eye ground level as well, too. So as we begin to conclude this conversation, how would you like to wrap this up for leaders who are leading in such you use the word that you so many places comes from the military, VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, leading in such uncertain times. And as an author who just 
released a book in the middle of these uncertain times. Yeah. What's a hope? So here's the hope is the times are uncertain and we certainly can't do much to control the times. We don't know what's going to happen next. There's so much unknown. But what we do know is that in these type of turbulent, massive change times, what serves leaders best are to have some anchors. And for me, the anchors are coming back to the principles that we know work. As you know, I didn't invent connection, communication, and collaboration. Those principles have been around for thousands of years. And the reason that we keep coming back to them, and I didn't write those, by the way, on the back of a cocktail napkin. Those came out of watching 2,000 groups of leaders over 20 years and the stories that emerged. Those were the big three themes. So for me, it was built from a grassroots level, if you will. So I think that as you are leading through this crisis, come back to the fundamentals mm-hmm. of connection, of communication, of collaboration, and be willing to self-reflect, how am I doing in each of those three dimensions? And what can I do tomorrow to be a little bit better at any one of them? Doesn't matter which one you choose, but yeah. choose one and take action and get started. And the only amplification I want to provide to that and ask you, and that is, how do I know how I'm doing? That's not just looking in the mirror and getting my assessment of how I'm doing. So looking in the mirror is a great place to start because it shows that you're really willing to do that. The other big place is find the people who will give you honest, no holds barred, real constructive feedback. Now, whether you want to do that formally with some kind of a 360 instrument, or frankly, if you want to sit down over a cup of coffee and say, I'm working on becoming a better leader, I would really like to hear what you have to say. Now, you need to have built enough trust that people believe you're genuine. If you basically are BSing this, people won't believe it. But the number one thing I think that actually will help accelerate your leadership development is getting that kind of feedback from people around you. And don't just go to the people who you think will give you the nice stuff. You actually will benefit more from the people who would talk with you and give you the tough stuff. It's not necessarily an easy conversation. In fact, it's not. And one of the things that really good leaders do is they start to make friends with discomfort. I don't say that it gets easy, but it gets more familiar. So I end up saying, so what great leaders do is they get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's a good place to be because if you're always comfortable, you're definitely not growing. So seek out that feedback from the people around you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. For people that would like to take a next step or to learn more, continue the conversation. How do they do that? Sure, Kevin. Yeah. So if you want to reach out, Easiest way is to go to www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. That is the book website. And while you're there, you can learn all about the book as well as you can download chapter one and give it a test drive to see if you want to read more. In addition, that page will link directly to my alanhunkins.com page, which will tell you all about the work I do with individuals, groups, and organizations to help them to become a better leader. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And since you've listened all the way through towards the end of the podcast, you get to join the end of the podcast interview club. I'll give you my direct email address. It's alain at alainhunkins.com. If anything I said sparks a question or a comment, 
please reach out. I do check and respond to every email I get. And that is A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. Ella, thank you so much. What a joy to have had this conversation. And I love how you weaved things in. And in my wrap-up, I'll explain the termite comment. (laughs) Great, Kevin. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure being with you today. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. You know, normally I do some kind of recap. However, as I sat to record this intro and outro of today's episode, I just feel so inspired to do something different. This is a prayer that you're probably familiar with, the prayer of St. Francis, and it's one I post so many times when things just aren't making sense in the world and the world seems like it's falling apart. Because this is a prayer from my heart. I hope it's a prayer from your heart. And if we all do this, we will do what Gandhi said, will be the change we want to see in the world. So listen as we wrap this up. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining me today. I hope you continue to be a light in a dark world and that you inspire others to take the road less traveled and to make a difference. Because, oh my gosh, if there's ever a time we need difference makers, it's now. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next week. What could 10 days of gratitude do for you? Find out what hundreds of people have experienced and make a change that can last a lifetime at thegratitudechallenge.community because it's better when we do things together.